in a lot of ways, Acts is God fulfilling Acts 1-8 in spite of the early Christians to take it to all the world, and they were located in Jerusalem, so he brought persecution to disperse them. And then he, you know, totally connected Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and that wouldn't have happened outside of his power and sovereignty. That's a good one, too. Saul, yeah. The salvation and the appointment of Saul to be the minister to the Gentiles is huge as well. That impacts us directly. Yeah, that's true. I think we're going to look at, well, we are going to look at what I think is one of the most important days in the early church. Aside from Acts chapter 2, I would say it's probably the most important day in the, in the life of the early church. It's in Acts chapter 15. The early church is going to deal with their first heresy. And if that day went poorly, millions of people would have not heard the true gospel. And it would have affected whether or not they believed in something that could actually save them. If you guys think back, Acts chapters 12 and 13 and 14 detail Paul's experience on his first missionary journey. He started out in Antioch in Syria, which was north of Jerusalem. And they traveled along the coast. If Jerusalem's here and Antioch's here, they traveled beyond and up above the coast into modern day Turkey, spreading the gospel in cities like Lystra and Derby, and another city named Antioch, but it was Antioch and Pisidia. And they shared the gospel in all of these cities. And it was on that first missionary journey that Paul got stoned and left for dead, and they encountered some very serious persecution. Um, and they actually started out on the island of Cyprus, I believe. And um, John Market abandoned them midway through the, the missionary trip. Anyway, great story. In Acts chapter. 14 at the very end of it they make it back to the Antioch the same Antioch that they started in where both Paul and Barnabas were two of the lead pastors look in verse 24 of Acts 14 it says then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia and then when they had spoken the word in Perga and went down to Italia and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. And then we pick up in chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And the rest of Acts chapter 15 hinges on that simple verse. Unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. This is going to shape the destiny of the church. That one verse is something that Paul is going to fight against for the rest of his life. It is the major theme of the book of Galatians. 
a lot of people, a lot of scholars think that the book of Galatians was written sometime in Acts chapter 15. Between that verse and when eventually Paul and Barnabas make it to Jerusalem for the church council, a lot of people think that Galatians was written in that time because Galatians tackles in a very detailed way a lot of the, the same issues that are addressed in this letter. And it's written to only the churches that Paul planted in his first missionary journey, the churches of Galatia, which was a region in Turkey. So a lot of the verses we're going to look at tonight outside of Acts are going to be in Galatians. Obviously, Paul fights this. Look in verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question after they had had no small dissension and debate. They argued this out in Antioch. This was something, this was a hill worth dying on for Paul and Barnabas. Listen to how Paul talks about this same issue in Galatians. In Galatians 1, 6 through 7, he says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different, gro- a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This message was a distortion of the gospel. And it polluted it so much that it wasn't the gospel anymore. In Galatians 5, 1 through 6, let me turn there and read that for you. Paul addresses it again. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. If you accepted this doctrine, what was preached by these guys in Antioch, the gospel is no longer for you. You can't believe simultaneously in what they preached and in what the true gospel is. Not that you could lose your salvation, but he's saying if, you, if you're believing in this, you never understood the real gospel to begin with. Paul says there's two ways to heaven in Galatians 5. One of them is through the real gospel. One of them is through working in the law. And you can't have it both ways. And this message was pervasive enough that it actually misled even some of the leaders of the church. In Galatians chapter 2, it says that even Peter was led astray and even Barnabas was led astray. And Paul had to confront Peter to his face about the issue. So even some of the apostles were led astray by this. And it all started in Acts chapter 15. We don't see it before 15, and they're trying to deal with it. So they go to Jerusalem because they can't settle the issue just in Antioch. So picking back up in verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, 
it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they get to Jerusalem and they start sharing their experience. And before they can even tackle the issue at hand, it's brought up again by some of the Pharisees who had become Christians. And I want us to try and put ourselves in their place and realize that it would have been very, very easy to be in that position and to think that it was necessary and required. For centuries and centuries and centuries, that was the path to God. If you wanted to get to God, if you wanted to be a believer, if you wanted to have a relationship with God, you would join with Israel. And it was a pretty open door. When you look in the Pentateuch, God encourages them to welcome the foreigner and to open their doors to the foreigner. Anybody could come and join with Israel and merge their identity and merge um, their culture, and not to merge the culture, but to accept Israel's culture and to join with them. And they were considered a part of Israel from then on. That was the way uh, to, to be a believer in the Old Testament for centuries. These Pharisees, their fathers, their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers, it had all looked the same. And now everything is changed, and they know that it's through faith in Christ that someone is saved, but they're so tempted to add something to it. None of these Pharisees, none of them talk about taking Christ out of the picture. It's just what they add to the picture, what they add to the gospel that makes it completely corrupted. These Pharisees have taken Christ and they've added it to what used to be the normal route to God. Think about it like this. <clears throat> you have the Jews and you have the Gentiles and you have God. And for centuries, the Gentiles went through the Jews to get to him. Through the Old Testament, through the law, through the sacrifices, through the priests, through everything. And you couldn't join Israel without circumcision and all that it implied. And now, for the first time ever, it's preached that you don't have to go through Israel to get to God. You have a straight, direct path through Christ. And that's what we believe. That's what Paul taught. That's what Peter taught. But it was a hard issue. Hard enough that Peter stumbled. If you can make guys like Peter and Barnabas stumble over something, that's a real issue. Not to be lightly glossed over. But they have to nail it down. Is it a two-step process to get to God? You have to become a proselyte to Judaism and then you can become a Christian? Or is it a one-step process straight from being a Gentile to being just simply a believing Gentile, a Christian Gentile? So they're going to look at it. And that's kind of the background of it. What I want to do is really just look at how they address the issue. Because I think that we can find some really practical ways for us and how we look at issues and maybe some controversy that may pop up in our lives. And if we address it the same way that they did in this first church council, we'll be doing well. We still do church councils today in some ways. A few decades ago, it was the Chicago Statement of Faith that, um, that supported biblical inerrancy. And just recently, it was the Statement of Faith by multiple churches all across the U.S. that um, came out with a statement about human sexuality. We still do this in some ways. We still get together and we think together as multiple churches and with a bunch of godly men and women, we can see the will of God more clearly than maybe we could on our own. And that's what they were doing. 
after so much debate in the city of Antioch, they needed a third opinion. And they wanted to go to Jerusalem. Because in Jerusalem were many of the 12 apostles, guys like Peter and James. And they wanted to see what their, thought, their thoughts were on it. So, continuing on in Acts chapter 15, let's look at how they, how they dealt with this issue. In verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together, together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear their word, hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. In this council, four men stand up to speak. And the first one's Peter. And then two stand up to speak, and it's Barnabas and Paul. And then finally, James stands up to speak. But Peter goes first, and what Peter does is he reminds them of the decision that God has already made. He, he encourages them to look back at history. Granted, it's not very far. It's just a, f- a few years back to Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius and his entire family um, come to Christ. But he encourages them to remember history and what God has already done. And the reason he can do that is because our God is a God who doesn't change. And that's important for us to remember. What God has always believed, he will continue to believe. What God has wanted us to do, he will continue to want us to do. He doesn't change. He's consistent. And Peter says, look back to the first time that Gentiles became believers And what did God do on that day? On that day, the two important words are in verse 9. On that day, he made no distinction. No distinction are the two most important words there. God gave the Holy Spirit to Cornelius and his family, and there was no circumcision. There was no mention of the law and having to adhere to the law. There was none of this come to the Jewish community to get to God, or you need to move your family to Jerusalem so you can be a part of our Jewish church and get to God, it was immediate. They believed they received the Holy Spirit, and they even spoke in tongues. And there was no distinction. And Peter was there, and he acknowledged that. God made no distinction between us and them. He reminded them to look at history. You know what I think Peter was wanting him to acknowledge? Who started this whole idea of salvation apart from proselytism into the Jewish faith? Who started this movement of salvation by faith alone? And it was God. It was God. And you remember in Acts chapter 10, whenever it happens, Peter's amazed because the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his family while Peter was still speaking. And when he went back and reported it to the Jerusalem church, it says that they marveled. And they said, wow, God has granted salvation to the Gentiles as well. And they just submitted to God's choice. It was God's choice 
to let the Gentiles in apart from Jew, being a proselyte to Judaism. So that's something that we can take from this as well. As controversy comes up, as we have to decide what should our stand be on an issue, what should my stand personally be, or maybe your family or the church, what should we believe about this? One of our first questions is, what has God done in the past on this issue? Where did this originate? Who began this doctrine? If it was God, you're pretty safe. Because God's not going to change. After Peter spoke in verse 12, it says, All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, the two other guys who stood up to speak next. As Barnabas and Paul related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied. So after Peter speaks and reminds them of what God has already done in their midst, what God has done locally in Caesarea where Cornelius lived, which was just a few days' journey from Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas stand up and they say, nothing's changed. God started this, but God has also sustained it. You think God is going to support a ministry that, that preaches a false gospel? I don't think so. And the, the three important words in what they're saying are signs and wonders. Not only did God start it with Cornelius, but as Paul and Barnabas went on and preached this in city after city after city after city, God accompanied it and supported it and verified it with signs and wonders. God's not going to verify something that's lacking and a critical ingredient. If Paul and Barnabas had been preaching a message that missed a critical ingredient of the gospel, God would not have authenticated it until they supplied that ingredient. But circumcision and joining with the Jewish community, like all of the centuries in the Old Testament, was not a part of the gospel. They didn't need to preach it. So God verified the gospel with signs and wonders. If God is doing miracles to prove what you're saying, you're saying what's correct. You're saying what's correct. And that's an incredible truth. We don't really see that nowadays, all right? Um, I don't really want to get into like the whole cessation of gifts, but we don't see that nowadays like they did back then. We don't see the healings and the speaking in tongues and the raising people from the dead like Peter did with Dorcas. We don't see that now. But we still see God authenticate the message that we proclaim. We still see it with salvations, with changed lives, with fruit showing up in believers' lives. We still see it. But for them especially, um, God supplying wonders and miracles really authenticated their message. But the hammer blow, um, the final thought was brought by James. Peter reminds them of history. Paul and Barnabas tells them what God has been doing currently. And James stands up and he closes the conversation with Scripture. And I'll just remind us tonight, Scripture always has the final word. Always. And when James stands up and reads from the Bible, the conversation is over. There's no more debate. James replies in verse 13, and he says, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. 
Can I just say, that's a very unique phrase. A people for his own name. That's the exact same phrase that was used in the prophets over and over and over again, describing Israel. Israel was a people that God chose and took for his own name. And now James is saying, that's true of the Gentiles as well. To take from them a people for his own name. Verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that is fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Some translations translate verse 17 to say, the Gentiles who bear my name, who are called by my name, who bear my name. It means the same thing. It means the Gentiles who belong to God. And even back in the Old Testament, Amos, this is from the book of Amos, Amos prophesies that this is going to happen someday. That someday there will be Gentiles who bear the name of the Lord. And what's unique about that is that they're still considered Gentiles in this passage. They're not Jews. And that's the important distinction. These are Gentiles who still associate with and have the integrity of their Greek culture. The integrity of their Greek culture has not been changed by Jewish customs. They are not Jewish proselytes who bear the name of the Lord. They are Gentiles who bear the name of the Lord. And when James says this, the discussion's over. Because it's hard to argue against the fact that the prophets in the Old Testament said there would be Gentiles who bore the name of the Lord without coming to the Jewish faith. In the sense of it being the Old Testament, the Old Covenant Jewish faith. And I'll just say these three arguments, these three attacks by these three apostles are a great, a great way to oppose any issue that may arise in the church remembering what God has done, thinking about what God is support, supporting currently with his power and the Holy Spirit, and remembering what Scripture says is the only way to attack controversy and heresy. By no means did it put the problem to bed. The problem is going to keep resurfacing throughout the decades to follow, but no longer is it going to be accepted by the vast majority of Christians. It is an issue that has received the stamp of denial by the apostles. It's one of the reasons why um, a lot of people think that the book of Galatians was written in the midst of chapter 15 of Acts is because nowhere in the book of Galatians does Paul discuss the apostles' decision, the decision of the early church council. It's only tackling the same issues. And you would think if those are the issues you're tackling, you would want to bring up the fact that the church council and all of the apostles agreed on the issue. But Paul really doesn't do that in the book of Galatians. So they move on from tackling this huge issue to where we want to stop, which is just in verse 21, I want to look at what they do next. They decide circumcision is not a part of Gentile conversion to Christianity. It's not an essential part. It's interesting that um, Schuyler read from Romans 1 and 2. 
where it says quite a bit about circumcision. Um, circumcision is of value, but only under certain circumstances. It's not a value of value in regards to salvation. So they they address that issue, and then in verses nineteen through twenty one. I think what, what's really interesting is verses 19 through 21 reveal that even though the early council was addressing a doctrinal issue, they still want to address it in love. That's what verses 19 through 21 reveal. They're addressing it in love. They don't want these Gentile believers who don't have to accept circumcision in their Christian freedom to trample on the Jewish believers. They want to simultaneously protect Gentile freedoms, our freedoms in Christ, and the gospel while protecting the Jewish conscience. Because this is going to be a struggle for believers who are Jewish in origin. If your fathers and your grandfathers and your great-grandfathers and all the way back to the time of Abraham have believed the same thing, it's going to be an issue to get over. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. And I'll remind you guys, that's where circumcision started. Not with Moses, not with Jacob, not with Isaac. You have to actually go back to Abraham. God gave the covenant of circumcision to Abraham. And James, in his wisdom as a pastor, gives his judgment, his opinion on the issue in verse 19. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't trouble them by adding this to their shoulders but should write to them to abstain from four things. Things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Verse 21 basically says Jews live everywhere. Israelites live everywhere. From old times, they have lived everywhere, and all across the world, they have preached and read the Old Testament. And the truths of the Old Testament and some of the commandments that came along with the Old Covenant, not the moral commandments, but the ceremonial commandments, have been read and diffused in countless cities across the Roman Empire. And that's what they're addressing here are some of the ceremonial aspects that were commandments. And for the Jews in the Old Testament, it was law, but it was ceremonial law, not moral law. The moral law is universal, like the Ten Commandments. Adultery, murder, lying, theft, all of those are universal. But the ceremonial law wasn't necessarily universal. It was for the Jewish nation. The moral law transcends time. It's true today. It's true for our great-great-grandchildren. It's going to be true. But the ceremonial law isn't so. Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law. No longer do we offer sacrifices on a physical altar or go through priests to get to God or have to adhere to dietary laws. But back then they did. And, and some of those ceremonial aspects of the law were so deeply rooted in Israelite society, that to get rid of them instantly would have violated Jewish consciences. And these four commandments, what it really is, <clears throat> is it's a little bit of a compromise. Not in a bad way, 
but a compromise between two cultures where the Gentiles don't use their Christian freedom to hurt the Jews. They love them like brothers. Like what Paul said to the Corinthian church when he said, I'll never eat meat again if it's going to make a brother stumble. That's the attitude of these four things. And the reason why I think all, three, all four of these things are ceremonial law may come as a bit of surprise. Does there seem to be one that stands out from the other group as not being a ceremonial law? Which one is it? Sexual immorality. That has nothing to do with a culture in the way that we think of sexual immorality. That, that's a part of God's moral law when it comes to adultery and every form of sexual immorality. So how, does, how is that ceremonial law? How is that something where we need to encourage the Gentiles to not violate it for the sake of the Jews? That seems like a black and white issue. That doesn't seem like something where the Gentiles have a little bit more freedom than the Jews. Well, I think that the answer is found in Leviticus 18. The word for this, this sexual immorality, is the word porneo, from which we get pornographic or pornography. It's a type of sexual immorality, and that's the word that they use, porneo. What's interesting is that in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses that exact same word to refer to incest and marrying within close familial bloodline. And Leviticus 18 addresses a whole slew of sexual morality issues that could have arisen in Israel. And I find it, to be completely honest, very, very interesting when you look at Israel's heritage. Because they're commanded to not marry brothers or sisters or aunts or uncles. or It's a very all-encompassing list. But some of them, we wouldn't consider moral issues. For example, in Leviticus 18, it actually commands them, do not marry your father's wife's daughter, your stepsister. You couldn't marry your stepsister. Many people probably wouldn't have an issue with marrying a stepsister in a lot of ways because there's no blood. There's no blood. That wouldn't be something that would convict a lot of hearts, especially in these Gentile cultures. Gentile Christians wouldn't have thought anything about marrying their stepsister. But for the Jews who for centuries had heard that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, God considers that an abomination because they were adopted into the family, the Gentiles would have been like, hey, if she's cute. But for the Jews, that would have been a serious problem. Serious. And so in some ways, there could have been some sexual immorality issues that popped up in the early church with these blending of cultures that weren't moral issues or ethical issues. It was simply cultural issues, ceremonial issues for the Jews that for centuries had heard this was wrong for the people of God. And think about it. In the end, it's not a moral issue. Who did Abraham marry? His half-sister. His half-sister. And we have no no record of God condemning that. And yet God commanded the Israelites not to. I think it was another way that God used to separate the Israelites from the cultures around him. Much like the dietary restrictions. He was trying to emphasize to them, you are separate. You are holy to me. And you're not like the other cultures around you. 
And that was so ingrained in Jewish society that it would have been a hard thing to blend Gentiles and Jews together in the same church and these issues not to arise. The other things are pretty easy, pretty straightforward. Things polluted by idols, that has to do with eating food that was sacrificed to a, a pagan deity. And Paul writes and he says, an idol's nothing. He told the Corinthian church, an idol is nothing. So to eat food that was sacrificed to an idol isn't, isn't an issue for those who are mature. But you better not make your brother stumble. If your brother thinks it's an issue, don't eat it in front of him. Don't do that. Jews would have been believers who struggled with that. Things that had been strangled uh, and things that still had blood in them, actually you can read about that in the chapter before, Leviticus chapter 17. It's really interesting. God told the Jews, the life of the animal is in its blood. So to eat an animal that didn't have the blood drained from it was a sin for the, the Jewish people. So to eat something that had just been strangled and the blood hadn't been drained out of it while the heart was still beating, to pump the blood out of the animal was, was not allowed. Um, they didn't serve medium steaks in, in Israel because of that. I mean, you couldn't eat it with the blood. It had to be kosher. And so I think what James is saying is on the, on the doctrinal issues, we don't give an inch. Circumcision is not a part of salvation, period. All of us agree. That is the decision of the early church. That's the decision of the gospel. That's the decision of Christ and God ultimately. And Cornelius, and the way that God ministered to Cornelius proves that. On the doctrinal issues, we don't give an inch. But on issues of Christian freedom, we will adjust our lifestyles to benefit other believers. And we don't really do kosher stuff today, but you're not going to find us drinking wine at a Christian fellowship meal. Even though our Christian freedom may allow us but we're not going to do anything that may cause another believer to stumble or that may seem like a gray area to some believers. We're not going to do anything, anything at all that could violate another Christian's conscience. And that's important to remember. And it's important to remember that even when we address doctrinal issues and we care about truth, we still care about individuals. We still care about not violating consciences. How can we not give an inch on the truth but take care of each other at the same time? And I love that that's the way James addresses it. You see James's heart come through in verses 19 through 21. So anyway, I think that Acts chapter 15 gives us a blueprint for how to tackle heresies and how to tackle controversies in the church. Look at what God has done. Look what God has instated. Look at what God's word says. And... There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. So getting all the apostles together, getting all, all of the elders together to settle this issue isn't something that we should neglect doing today. And I think that's why a lot of times on these doctrinal statements we have multiple de denominations, multiple churches present to sign them like that. But I just encourage you all, don't give any on doctrine. But when it comes to your Christian freedoms, value your brothers and sisters more than the freedoms that you have in Christ. So let me pray for us. Um, and then I think Skylar's going to come up and ingrain in our minds the announcements for today. So it's good.
God, I thank you that this early issue in the church is recorded in Acts chapter 15 and that the outcome is recorded. And I also am thankful that it closes with such a practical view of Christian love and Christian freedoms and how we view other people. The Gentiles were under no obligation to become Jewish and to proselyte into that nation. They were under no obligation to accept circumcision. And to accept circumcision for salvific purposes is to pollute the gospel to the point that it can't save you. God, I pray that we'll remember that today. We won't add anything to the gospel and we won't take anything to the gospel, but we will believe it is by faith alone that we are acceptable to you. It's by faith alone in Christ. God, I pray that you'll protect the gospel. We know that you will. Protect it in our church. Protect it in our hearts. And also, God, help us to have the view that James had that when it comes to our Christian freedoms, we'll sacrifice them. We won't do everything that we have the capability and the extent to do in the freedom we have in Christ if it'll make a brother or a sister stumble. We, we value other believers. We want to help them to live a life that is free of stumbling blocks, to live with clear consciences, to love Christ. God, I pray that you'll help us to do that. I pray that you'll help us to care about the truth like these guys did and to care about their brothers like these guys did as well.